AM 1600 KIVA, BQ.FM, com. I'm Eddie Aragon. The Rock of Talk, glad to be here with you for another installment of Jeffrey Candelaria's Straight Talk right here in the Kiva. Every Saturday afternoon from 1 to 2, Jeffrey gives you the insights, the analysis, and interviews that you can only get uh, from one Jeffrey Candelaria. Uh, before he came in, he was talking about his car. We'll have to get into that uh, some other juncture of some other show. But, Jeff, take it away. Absolutely. Thank you again, Eddie Otterghone, for not only uh, producing this show, but, uh, you know, providing this wonderful state-of-the-art studio. We're now actually being simul broadcast on all these platforms. So, Eddie, all these platforms, talk a little bit about your new technology now so that our, not the only our... same technology, just a new board. So, a, we've been on Rock of Talk TV. This is going on uh, year two. The same stuff that we've been uh, doing has been just, uh, you know, a little bit different. But now we actually have in-studio cameras which are uh, provided to you, which is right in front. You can adjust them however you want. You get to control the camera, which uh, you can block your face there, or Jeffrey can see, move it just right to the, the there, there. He can touch his hair. He can do all <laughs> Don't those touch my hair, Dad. Yeah, Remember that from 19? Yeah, so if you want to, you can, you can go like Dr. Summers and block your face or whatever you want to do. But yeah, so um, we're on Roku, uh, uh, Amazon Fire, and uh, Apple TV. We're also... Uh, on every podcast platform out there, including Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and uh, Apple. Uh, so you can get us on that. We have our app, which has over now, uh, as of uh, last week, over 65 radio stations that are on there, all various music uh, platforms that are all there. And then, uh, of course, our show. And my show I do in the afternoon from 4 to 7 each and every day. Um, and uh, we're on AM radio. And, you know, we feature all the best in uh, conservative I shouldn't say conservative. It's really American talk radio. Uh, there, there really is American and anti-American now. And boy, if you enjoy those $5 gas prices and you voted for Biden, good for you. So uh, yeah. there you go. Take it away, Jeff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, you know, on a, and that's what we're going to discuss today. But just to your point, Eddie, on average, Americans are paying an additional three to $400 a month, depending on where you live, just to be where you were pre-Biden. So we won't get into all that right now. We're going to have actually a little bit more of a, a lighthearted show, uh, typically on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler. Again, let your friends know there's no other show like this on the air because not only am I a multi-generational Hispanic who has lived what I call the gauntlet of the New Mexico ex experience, but I call out hypocrisy, including my own, because I'm a hypocrite like everyone else. The difference is I'm... I try to manage it, I try to understand it, and I try to dissect it, and I never try to let it own who I am. But at the same time, what really bothers me is the folks that run our country, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or, you know, bureaucrats, whatever, unelected officials like Fauci, who really, for about two years, was the most important person in our midst, but yet he was unaccountable. These people don't call out their own hypocrisy. And that's what I try to do on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Today, however, I want to do something a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, my guest, I will introduce uh, very quickly here. But before I do that, I want to thank my sponsors. And that are uh, the sponsors coming on board are Greg Frost Jr. I'm very excited about that. Uh, my current sponsor, S3 Security. S3 Security. If you have an issue, any of your security at your, particularly your business, uh, whether they're computers or any other security uh, infrastructure you have at your business, please call Ben Mozek at S3 Security. He's a local guy. He's worked with my company uh, and he's got over 20 years of uh, cybersecurity acumen and he's a local guy. If you'd like more information, S3 Security, his commercials run on this station and also, you can get a hold of me, jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. You'd like to sponsor my show. I also uh, do, a, a, I think, a very good job of working with Rudy Grande to customize not only our commercial schedule for you, uh, but also customizing messaging. And even during the show, I will advance any commentary on your behalf as a sponsor live in my show. So today, I'd like to introduce uh, my guest. We're going to talk about sports, athletics, and have a little bit of fun, uh, particularly emphasizing the local uh, perspective. Uh, for example, Albuquerque is 
really been uh, the genesis that spawned numerous world-class athletes. And a lot of times we have forgotten, for example, did you know an Albuquerque native fought Muhammad Ali? And at the same time, that Albuquerque native held the light heavyweight championship of the world during the 1970s, that kind of conversation. We're going to have a little fun today. My guest is Ed Nunez. He is a, what I consider a sports authority. He's a fellow St. Pius graduate, as is Eddie Aragon, right here on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. And I've known Eddie, obviously, for 40 years plus, and he has been literally involved and integrated in the sports world uh, for all that time. So with that, Welcome to Straight Talk uh, with Jeffrey Candler, Ed Nunez, and you are not the athletic director for UNM, right? <laughs> uh, no, no, I go by uh, Ed Nunez, and he goes by Eddie, and I appreciate that, Jeffrey. It's good to be on with you, and you know, just mention all the platforms that Eddie's uh, out of going is has on his station. Uh, Eddie's always on the cutting edge of some new platform, so uh, kudos out to him in getting Rocco Talks voice out there as many platforms as he as he does. Absolutely, and you know, it seems like anytime I in, I interact with you whether it's through phone or I see you somewhere, we're running in each other extemporaneously, we always end up talking about sports because I have a fascination with sports, even though I, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very interested in politics, world politics, geopolitics, local politics, municipal, state, federal. But the other interest that I hold dear to my heart is science as well. But the other uh, topic is sports. I've always, you know, I've played sports. I, I used to box. I, I'm a runner. I do all these things. And I've had the fortune of going to Lobo games at the pit since 1969, <laughs> that long, P.D. Gibson era, right? So I've always had this real fascination with, with sports and uh, you're an authority. And let us know a little bit about your background and, and, and why you're extraordinarily credible in this thing called athletics and sports. Well, I'll tell you what, you're, you're right. You're, 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 you're right that I've gotten the opportunities to be involved with sports. Now I uh, went to Pius one year, then I finished at Highland. I went to actually transfer to Highland as a graduate of, uh, of Highland high school. So, but being involved with sports, you know, I was able to play basketball. I coached basketball. Then I officiated high school basketball for 22 years. And now I'm a broadcaster for ProView networks. I was just at university arena covering the four A semifinal between St. Pius and Highland. So and I'm, um, I retired from the city in 2019, and I'm also the voice of Western New Mexico Athletics, their home games, their volleyball, football, basketball. So we travel down there, just covering their home games, which, believe me, is enough. Yeah. That travel will eat you up, man. So <laughs> where are they housed? That Grand? Silver City. Silver City, okay. That's three and a half, four hours. You know, and, uh, they play in the wow. Lone Star Conference, now, uh, Lone Star Conference. And I'll tell you what, people that don't know, the Lone Star Conference is very tough. There's Texas teams in it. Uh, Eastern New Mexico is in it. And I'll tell you, uh, I love Western. I've only been out there two years. And, you know, I'm getting to the age, though, Jeffrey, where I'm thinking, do I really want to keep doing this, being in a hotel by myself on Fridays? I'm getting, you know, I'm getting to the age. My, I've got a granddaughter who's three, and uh, she's the apple of my, my wife and I's eye for sure. But I'm lucky that I've had those opportunities. You know, I called the game this morning. My son graduated and played at St. Pius. He's an attorney in town. So he called the game with me as my color commentator, and I'm the, the play-by-play guy. That's an extraordinary opportunity to call a game with your son. He's been my color commentator oh, for eight years. Yeah. So it doesn't get any better than that. And, you know, for us having maybe some personal bias, me towards Hodden, although I love Pius too. I've got some strong Pius ties and he's got Pius ties. We were right down the line today in, in a, the way we called the game and I couldn't be more proud of him as my son. Yeah. Having him by my so side. to be able to do something with your son at that level, it's got to be an extraordinary experience. Kind of like, it reminds me of Ken Griffey and member Griffey Senior. Oh, yes, of course. And a lot of folks, and we're going to talk about sports and have a little bit more fun and I typically do on my show because I'm a very sober-minded kind of cynical guy, but I'm well-versed, pretty well-educated. But today we're going to have a little bit of fun with sports. The Big Red Machine. Again, you're listening to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. We are with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 a.m. And now we're live on all this magical technology. The Big Red Machine, for me, even though I'm an L.A. Dodger fan, have been since you know the day I was born, 1970 to about 77. The Big Red Machine, Johnny Bench, uh, uh, Concepcion, shortstop. You're talking about uh, uh, Pete Rose. Tony You're, Pettis. Tony Pettis. Andreessen. George Drew, Foster. 
the second baseman. Uh, so, yeah, Morgan. Morgan. I mean, Johnny, you mentioned Johnny Bench. The, the collection yeah. of world-class baseball players and future Hall of Famers, in my opinion, other than maybe the 23 Yankees, what do you think? Big Red Machine? Ken Griffey Jr. or Sr. Yes, played, Ken Griffey played Sr. as well on that. Team. And if you remember, the manager, Sparky Anderson, was out Sparky Anderson. Uh, outstanding. Uh, they had some great pitching as well. That was a great team. That was one of the best teams there was. And if you remember, in 1976, they played the New York Yankees in the World Series. They swept them. Yep. They swept them like the Yankees weren't even on the same field as Absolutely. they were. And, uh, you know, they had a great run there in the 70s, and that was a, a very good baseball team. You know, Cesar Geronimo, the center fielder, that was a great team. That really yeah. was. And and actually, a guy named Foster ended up playing on that team for I think, a couple of years. And he was one of the first center fielders in about a 15-year period that actually hit 50 home runs. Yes, he did. See, remember home runs today are almost commonplace for lots of different reasons, I guess. But back, other than the end of maybe the 1950s era, right around through the 80s or 90s or so, there was about a 30, 40-year period where if you hit 40 home runs, that's akin to today's 55 home run person. That's Something good. of that's that a, nature. That's a good point. If you remember George Foster, I remember he had the black bat. He had a black bat. He also played for the New York Mets, number 15. And George Foster, I remember, 50 home runs. And that was a huge deal. And then remember the steroid era. All of a sudden, Brady Anderson from the Baltimore Orioles, who hit like 185, has got 50 home runs. Yeah. All these guys that have never hit more than 10 home runs, 40 home runs, 50 home runs. Yeah. So, yes, when you mentioned George Foster, that was absolutely a big thing back then, him hitting 50 home runs. But that big red machine, Cincinnati, Ohio, the year before, I think maybe the greatest World Series that I ever witnessed personally, the uh, Cincinnati Reds, Boston Red Sox. Carl, you, uh, you, not Ustremski, uh, Carlton Fisk. Uh, the home run. Bottom yeah. of the ninth, I think it was. Hits that home run. He's waving his arm so it stays fair. <laughs> it goes to a game. So that was the most exciting, for me, World Series I can recall. In, in my, you know, watching World Series for 50-some years. Uh, that was a, a, a magic moment on NBC. Bernie Carbro, I believe, a pinch hit home run for Boston to keep the Red Sox alive in that. And Carlton Fisk, as you mentioned, the great uh, picture of him. Of, stay fair, stay fair. And stay it fair. did. Went and just some, some baseball drama. And, you know, it's mentioned that you mentioned baseball. Their strike is over, and they're going to start their season yeah. on time where it didn't look like for a little while there that they would. Yeah. So their strike is over, and it's funny that you just bring that up. That's a timing. Well, that, that World Series, again, 1975. Remember, the Boston Red Sox had not worn a World Series themselves since, like, 1917. So, I mean, for them, their, their uh, period of not winning was something at that point to about 60, 70 years, whatever it was at that time. Couldn't have been 70. Must have been about 60 years. But remember, they were actually playing that game in Boston, right? Right. So, Game 7... Boston actually had home field advantage for game seven, but I think it was Joe Morgan hit that little bloop single that allowed the Reds to go ahead. And the Reds ended up winning that game in Boston, game seven, 1975. And it wasn't until the Red Sox broke through against the Yankees in the early 2000s where they were down three games to zero to the Yankees in the American League Championship Series yeah. when it looked like they were dead. Yeah. They came back from 3-0 yeah. and then they finally break through and win a World Series. That's a great point. Uh, again, remember the recently, I'm not a Cubs fan, I'm a Dodger fan, but the Cubs also had almost a 100-year period where they hadn't won a World Series until they broke through, what, about five, six years ago, right? Right, right. remember the, there was the curse of the GOAT, uh, Leo DeRocher, the GOAT on the field, uh, all kinds of hexes, the Andrew Bartman in the stands uh, messing with the ball that uh, Moises Alou was going to catch. There were so many things that they went through during that yeah. time where people were just saying they're cursed and hexed, and they finally break through and win a World Series. Absolutely. Uh, my guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Again, we're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 AM. Tell your friends that's amplitude of modulation. Uh, give, me a, give me a call or get send me a text, actually, or preferably, let's do this. Give me an email if you have some thoughts on the show, you'd like to suggest a guest, or you'd like to sponsor my show, jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. Let's talk about something that's extremely dear to my heart as a sports fan and yours, and that's the pit, and that's this thing called the New Mexico Lobos men's basketball team. With all respect to the Lady Lobos, let's talk about 
the tradition, the the just the emotional uh, empathy that we have when the Lobos lose, win, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. I've been going to games since 69. And, you know, Albuquerque is an interesting place. In the metro area, probably eight, 900,000 persons, if you count Rio Rancho and some of the other. It seems like Albuquerque, and I don't want to get uh, too sober here, has really kind of stagnated over the last generation in terms of welcoming progress, innovation, vision. My point is this, getting back to topic at hand with Ed Nunez, Jeffrey Candelaire here. 1966, someone or persons at UNM had the vision, Mm -hmm. this is 70 years ago almost, to build the most iconic arena west of the Mississippi. 1966, the pit held 15,000 persons and was the iconic basketball venue, perhaps in the entire country, 65 years ago. And on that platform, we led the nation in attendance in the top 20, that is, for something like 45 years until very recently when under uh, Coach Weir's, uh, you know, his regime, that that was broken. So our community's fascination with Lobo basketball, men's Lobo basketball, and particularly the pit, talk about that. Well, you, you mentioned uh, in 66. Now, I was a Lobo fan. Of course, I was born in 62, but I started being a Lobo fan at a very early age. And you just mentioned vision. What, uh, Bob King had had some success at Johnson Gym. What would make them think in building that? Remember, I was you know too young to really understand that. What would make them think that a pit, you know, with fifteen thousand people were going to come? What made them think with a couple of years success? He did recruit Ira Harch, Mel Daniels, Ben Monroe, uh, Ron Nelson. He did start recruiting some better players. They hadn't had great success. Then they did with Harge and Daniels. Right? They yeah. never touched the pit floor. Right. But all of a sudden, your uh, your question is is a good one because all those great pictures uh, you see them uh, the, all the trucks on the floor, and then you see the sand of it being built. Right. And then when it's built and uh, they start winning even more games in that place, and I tell people today, kids don't understand the power of the pit, but you do, and, and I do, because you know we're, we're older people. And so I remember in 77 when they were ranked number four in the nation with Michael Cooper and Marvin Johnson, Russell Saunders, uh, that team broke my Phil heart. Abney. <laughs> Phil, Phil Abney, Willie Howard, yeah. um, Coach Ellenberger. And, uh, you know, a lot of the Lobo fans wouldn't have any idea who he was. The flamboyant, the tan, the turquoise jewelry, shirt open to the navel. The guy was an incredible, charismatic guy, right? And so the pit then, remember, the mezzanine was still there. The student seats that are media were student seats, right? Yeah. There's not media seats. Right. That place was off the wall, man. Oh. Uh, you never heard it louder, right? You never heard it louder. The so, only yeah. time, I, and I don't want to interrupt your no, no. train of thought. The only time I did hear it as loud, in my view, was a few times during the Alfred era. I will say... There were a couple of games during the Alfred era that I think were comparable to that those times, decibel level, the the impetus of of momentum with the sense of winning, and we could be a top you know ten team, which we were a couple of times. So didn't mean to interrupt, but I do feel during the Alfred era there were a couple of times when you had Will Chamberlain and Lou Alcindor playing, metaphorically speaking. Right. But get back to your point about those th- those days with with. Particularly the Allenberger days. Oh, you know, and, and I when I look back on it, uh, they uh, they uh, used to have these turquoise uniforms. I know you remember those; were just incredible. Absolutely. And they represented New Mexico. They'd go to Las Vegas and play UNLV and win 102 to 98 yeah. without three point shots. People are like, "What? There's no three. And if you tell young kids today, there's no three point shots, they look at you like you're a dinosaur. Like, are you kidding me? Remember Marvin Johnson, 50, 50 points, points against Colorado State. I was at that game. It was an afternoon game. No three point no shot three at point that shots. time. And if you remember, he he goes off the court with his arms raised. I still remember that. Marvin yeah. was one of my favorite players. So, you know, you, you and I have talked about this several times. Now, I was at the game last Saturday. That's the first game I've been able to go to in a long time with COVID and things like that. And I, and, and I, and I watched intently. I love the Lobos just like you do. I'm a UNM graduate, and, and that's what we have here is Lobo basketball. And I think with UNM athletic director, Eddie Nunez, I know why he hired Patino. Patino in the pit. The COVID's going to be over. We're going to win some games. It's going to be on billboards, bus stops, the whole thing. I know what he's thinking. But there were some times last Saturday that when the Lobos were playing well and I heard sort of somewhat of a roar and I'm thinking, hey, you know what? If they succeed again, they'll come back. Yeah. They still love this town. They're, they still love their Lobos, right? This, this town still loves their Lobos. Yeah. So it gave me hope. But you and I saw a pit, even, even now, watching the high school tournament. Uh, remember, we didn't have a normal tournament last year with a percentage of people allowed in. In 2020, no fans allowed in. So being there at the pit this week for the state tournament, you're seeing bands come in, people come in. 
you're seeing a return to somewhat normalcy, and that's great. Because, you know, it's every kid's uh, high school dream to come down and play in the pit. Oh, absolutely. So you mentioned that. I remember I got to run down as a North-South All-Star in 1980 when they still had 12000 for that game. Yeah. You never forget it. Yeah. I came down as a referee. You know, I, I ref a state championship. You never forget it. I yeah. came down as a coach. Absolutely. I got to come down as a broadcaster. I've been lucky. Very yeah. fortunate to have those opportunities. Absolutely. My guest is Ed Nunez. I'm Jeffrey Candelari. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. Tell your friends this show. Uh, it's visceral. It's organic. I try to be as authentic as possible. I call out hypocrisy. Today, we're having fun. We're talking about sports, particularly New Mexico sports and other iconic sports venues and moments that are perhaps part of our uh, human experience, uh, particularly those of us that love you know, sports of all kinds. So getting back to the pit, one of the things has, that has concerned me because I've been buying Lobo tickets really through my grandfather and myself continuously since 1966. I did a calculus on this. We've spent over $150,000 on Lobo tickets in that mm-hmm. time frame, not including Lobo Club contributions. So I feel like I'm a stakeholder in this thing called the pit and Lobo men's basketball. My concern is, you know, I'm 50 plus as are you. When I go to Lobo games, the core crowds that are always there, particularly the last, this last season that just concluded, we averaged about 8,000, right? Capacity is 16,000. So we were 50% full with me right. so far. Mm-hmm. I would say 80% of that 50% that were there are 50 plus persons. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if UNM marketing department, uh, athletic marketing department understands the, the consequence of identifying a younger population to supplant, replace, or integrate with us who are fans that are older. So refreshing the population with a younger crowd. I just read in the paper the other day that United, you know, the soccer Mm -hmm. team, they've sold 10,000 tickets thus far for their season. That's more than Lobo basketball. And I I would surmise and conjecture that of that 10,000 population that's supporting United, and I have nothing against soccer. I've never played the game myself. I wouldn't know what a soccer ball is from, you know, the categorical imperative. However, how do we get the United folk, that population, to have an interest in Lobo basketball? Is it going to just take winning? Or what, what do you think of my... My thesis. No, you know what's up, uh, Jeff? You're a deep thinking guy, bro. You know, I got to I gotta try to catch up with you, man. You know, but, <laughs> you know, no, no, no. You made some good points there because you know what uh, marketing, you said this to me five years ago. I did. Okay. So millennials are a little bit different, right? Now, you and I, I'll still, when, you know, the Dallas Cowboys have been a horrible team for, I'll still watch three hours. I've got to see every play. Lakers, when they're on, I'll watch, you know, I'll watch the Lakers. I'll watch my teams. Millennials are a little bit different the way they you know, get entertainment. Are they going to come in? You know, and your, your point, you said this, like I said, five years ago, how do we, how the Lobos going to attract new fans? Uh, you, and so that's a good question. United, give them credit. They've done a good job in the community as far as, as uh, marketing and getting those fans. 10,000 fans, that's, that's unbelievable. A lot of Hispanic fans here like soccer. There's no question about that, right? And I'm not saying that's all Hispanic fans. They've just done a good job. Yeah. So, again, I think if New Mexico, the Lobos start winning, it's like build a field of dreams. Build it, and they will come. I still say that. It gave me hope when I heard the roar last Saturday. Like, hey, you know what? If they start winning again, you know, Patino in the pit, that could still be a lead to, you know, and again, your, your point is hopefully younger fans, because even in the Alfred era, they did, you did have, you had a student section that was young, involved in the oh, game. Absolutely. So I still think that can happen. You, you, see, you see that around colleges all around the country, San Diego State, right? For a while, they had a, a great fan base of young yeah. kids. So we need that. You're right. There's going to be, my friend brought that up to me last Saturday when we were at the game. He said, hey, most of the fans here are white-haired people, man. How are we going to get younger people? Absolutely. And I thought what you said, and I told you that. Absolutely. I thought about what you had said. So I think that's up to the University of New Mexico marketing department to decide how that's going to happen. But I'll tell you what, let's be honest. And I've said this to a number of people. Global basketball is number one, and everything else is still in the rearview mirror. United in the rearview mirror. And yeah. UNM football in the rearview mirror. The Topes are going to sell. You mentioned that. Isotopes with that park, what Albuquerque did with that park is amazing. Oh, absolutely. Amazing. They did that right. Yeah. I can't even tell you who's on the team, but I, I want to go for some ambiance, for a beer, for, you know, what they do there is unbelievable. Yeah. So 
everything else is behind the Lobo basketball. Well, baseball's always been a little different because baseball is one of the only sports where there's not a clock. In other words, football, you have a clock. Boxing, there's a clock. Soccer, there's a clock. Football, there's, I mean, so it's almost like, and, and I think it was Bob Costas, who I'm not a fan of, but he did say baseball's like a picnic with your friends and family. And it kind of is. You go to a game. I'm a big Dodger fan, but when I go to uh, Dodger Stadium, which is still my my second most favorite place in the world, beyond the pit when somebody when the when the Lobos are winning, I mean I'm sitting there with a Dodger dog and a beer and whoever I'm dating at the time. <laughs> well, that's right, I'm married. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not really paying attention to the game right. per se, the ambiance, but it's just the experience of being with a you know fifty thousand people, having some food, watching your favorite team wearing a Dodger. It's it's almost an experiential kind of thing versus the game itself. Football, boxing, those kinds of sports, you're paying attention to almost every play, particularly if you're a fan, right? Mm-hmm. When you're at a baseball game, there's almost an element of of picnic-ish, you know, kind of something else where if you're distracted, it's okay. Because for one thing, there's no clock. But anyway, I digress. Getting back to the pit, Coach Patino this year won five, six games in, in the conference, did not have a, a big man per se, lost three of his big men for various reasons throughout the season. But he really didn't have a full cycle season to recruit his own players. Mm-hmm. Please remind our listeners on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Kendler, Rick Patino's pedigree, who his father was. Do you think he's going to do uh, be a good coach? Because to me, coaching today isn't so much about X's and O's. It's about recruiting. It's also your, about, thought, yeah, it's your, also, uh, your thoughts. It's also about managing, managing personalities and players because these days everybody's on, you know, wants to have their brand on Twitter. Uh, how does it look on, you know, their, their brand? They're, they're worried about themselves more than the team. That's why you see so many players in transfer portal. To your point, uh, you, you know what? Here's the thing about Coach Patino. You mentioned he lost Jethro Muscadin, the big man. Vladimir Manuel decided not to play 6'11. Emmanuel Quach. Six, seven got hurt. There's all their bigs, right? There's a lot of their bigs. Yeah. Recruit some bigs. We got to give them a chance. That's what I say. Now, Coach Weir, personally, I liked him very, very much. Good guy. Good community guy. But uh, not, you know, not the greatest uh, coach probably, uh, but, a, but a good man. But with Coach Patino, with the UNM doesn't have money to keep hiring and firing and hiring and firing. So we got to give him a chance. Uh, he said this in the paper today, and they said that Jeff Grammer, journal writer Jeff Grammer said that. Uh, it's obvious UNM needs some bigs. You can't win without Sebastian Forsling. The freshman played better as the season went on. He's got to learn how to play in the post, Jeff. It's a lot different when you're bodying people up, trying to deny position and get position. He's got to go to school this summer and lift weights and get stronger. Yeah. But I think if they recruit some other players, I think they're going to be between Jalen House and Jamal Mashburn Jr. You've got two players you can build around there. So I think you get a, get a good recruiting class. And I'm not going to say New Mexico is going to win a Mountain West Conference title because it's been a while, but I think they'll be fine. I really do. So, so you do have faith, or you you do feel Coach Patino with his pedigree because he has his own brand. Keep in remind our listeners, his dad was Patino. The you know one at Kentucky, one at Providence, one at one at Louisville. Uh, but coach of the Knicks. Coach, coach the Knicks. He, you know he does. He so does his pedigree right. is there, right? Richard Patino, uh, you know, son of Rick Patino, coach at Iona right now. Uh, you know, it's hard to live up to that, though. You know, he's a good coach. There's for sure he's a good coach. Has he proven that he can get teams to the next level? You know, he had, he started out well in Minnesota. Didn't end well. So, you know, I think, I think the jury's still out on him. But I still think that most of the people that I've talked to here in Albuquerque are willing to give him a chance, man. You know, everybody wants Lobo basketball, and, and they like Jalen House. They like Jamal Mashburn Jr. Absolutely. So, I think there's some excitement there and those guys coming back. And what are they going to do to build around those guys? Yeah. Give me a couple of bigs. We're all right. We're, and one more, a couple more shooters. Maybe a big power forward, get some rebounds. We're back in business. Absolutely. Okay. I guest on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 a.m. And we're also live with all these other platforms here, all these media outlet platforms. My guest, Ed Nunez, he is really uh, an authority with a great deal of credibility, hands-on credibility in the world of uh, sports and athletics. Uh, let's move on to a couple of other topics. You know, some of the athletes that have, have spawned or, you know, really come from New Mexico or Albuquerque. Remind our listeners, we're talking about one of my favorite families are the Unsers. Okay, everybody always hears about Mario Andretti and the Andrettis. They won a total of the Andretti family, one Indy 500. 
the Unser's from Albuquerque actually were from Idaho, but ultimately made their, you know, their lives here. Nine Indy 500s with uh, El Senior four, Bobby three, and uh, El Senior uh, Junior, junior two. two. Last I checked, nine's bigger than one. But uh, do we? Do you think in the in the annals of IndyCar racing, which to me, by the way, I don't know how you feel, that's the most exciting car racing in the world for at least two reasons. One, an IndyCar will travel 240 miles an hour. A NASCAR tops maybe 195, maybe hit 200. So you're talking about 40 miles an hour faster. Further, because it's open wheel, you can't make whoever you is mm -hmm. driving a car, you can't make a mistake. You can't do like NASCAR where you bump each other and you, you draft and you hit the bumper from behind or you hit a wheel, whatever. If you are driving an IndyCar, you make any kind of contact, you're talking about instantly a, right. a, 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 a tragic wreck of some kind. So the technical driving skills of an IndyCar mm -hmm. racer to me are far in excess of what it is to drive, no offense, a NASCAR. You know, you make a lot of great points about the youngsters, and I think it's uh, with Mario Andretti, think about the name. It just rolled Mario Andretti. rolls off your tongue, right? So maybe that's why they, the name itself gets a lot of attention. But you mentioned uh, Bobby with three, Al with four, Junior with two. Junior almost won another one in uh, 1989. He Just on the uh, stretch, he bumped tires, and boom, he's out right. of the race. My wife and I were watching, like, go, and then, oh, man, it happens. You're right. right? He, was, happens. he was yes. within 400 yards yes. and then, yeah. of winning a third Indy. That's right. I forget he hit that. Emerson uh, Fittipaldi? Fittipaldi. Emerson Fittipaldi. Yeah. And uh, so the answer is here. And, and you know what? You mentioned the reflexes. And I think Al Jr. or Al Sr. said, look, when he stopped, he retired. He goes, I don't have the reflexes to do that anymore. The driving and, and uh, you know, you have, to, you have to be so quick with your mind and, and, and the decisions that you make yeah. on that track. So uh, your point about the Unser's, uh, and, you know, Unser Boulevard. So I, th I don't know. Sometimes I think we took it for granted how great they were. I think we I, did. I really did. I, I, I really and did. And remember also when the Unser's were at the, the height of their powers, in the late 60s up to about 95-ish, whatever. But particularly the younger two brothers, which, again, on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelari, Ed Nunez, my guest, they won the younger brother or the older brothers seven, uh, you know, Indy 500s. It wasn't live on television. No, no, it wasn't. So it wasn't an event that people saw live on television. We assume everything's live now because of all the technology and all of that. But the most of the, the Indy 500 win, wins by the Unsers, Albuquerque Unsers, were not live on television. They were big events, though, because everybody knew about Indy like they knew about Le Mans and the Grand Prix, right? Those are those are big world races. So everybody, you mentioned Indy back at that day, and it, I don't know that it has the same, uh, you know, connotation as it did back then as far as it being a huge, huge thing. It's still huge. But, uh, yes, you're right. It wasn't. Uh, but I remember watching on uh, Wide World of Sports when they would have the lineups Gosh, and, uh, the way they call those from uh, Albuquerque, races. New Mexico, you know, Bobby yeah. Unser. Oh, Anytime man. I heard Albuquerque, cause, you know, I, I've always just thought like, well, nobody knows we're even here, you know. So, no, you, anytime Albuquerque pride. has any relevance on a on a on a world platform or a national platform, you know, as an Albuquerque, and I'm very proud of that. And uh, it seemed like the Unser's always represented our state well, and Albuquerque well, you know, specifically. In in addition to that, I used to drive go karts after my mother passed away. And these were go-karts that would travel 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. So I understand some of the principles of open-wheel driving. And I have had a particular fascination with uh, with Speed, Indy. man. Well, if you think about the cars that you get, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, <laughs> I, <laughs> from back to the uh, Black Trans Am when I was a freshman at St. Pius and you were a senior, you love speed, man. And, you know, uh, so yeah, you, you, you kind of, you, you would uh, well, gravitate towards cars that I, have speed, I do. man. Yeah. I do. My guest, Ed Nunez, uh, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candler, and I'd like to thank you again for taking your time to be here with, with me today and our listeners, having a little bit of fun talking about uh, sports. Other athletes from, from Albuquerque and New Mexico, here's another thing that a lot of young folk don't, don't understand. Muhammad Ali, everybody knows Muhammad Ali. He's uh, probably the ubiquitous presence in the annals, annals of all sports. Maybe Michael Jordan, a distant second. Bobby Foster from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Fought Muhammad Ali in Las Vegas, I believe in 1973, 74, 74, 74. Yeah. Uh, knocked down uh, seven times by it lasted in the seventh round. 
and uh, Bobby Foster, a light heavyweight champion. You know what? People kind of forget about Bobby Foster, man. Knocked out Dick Tiger in 1968 to win the championship. Right. Actually fought Jorge Ahumada here in 1975 to defend the title. Oh, at the pit, right? Yes, and, Bobby, and Foster won the decision, but there was a lot of controversy. A lot of people felt that Ahumada had won that fight, and maybe right. Bobby Foster, the beneficiary of a hometown decision. But uh, Bobby, I think people, you know, Bobby Foster wrote. People forget about how great Bobby Foster was, man. Bobby Foster was lightweight, was great. heavy, heavyweight, yes. lightweight, heavyweight championship, uh, champion of the world. Yes, he was. He was. He and was, he held yes. the title for about seven years, for right? a long time. Yes, he did. When, yeah. it, when it, you know how it was back. It, let's let's be honest. Boxing is probably one of the most crooked businesses there is, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, other than yeah. politics. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned hypocrisy, and there's so much hypocrisy in everything, sport. But at least you, I'll, I'll give you this: you've always said that. And uh, you know, you've always said this to me. At least you know you can say uh, you you try to uh, you know corral your own hypocrisy. I so do. do I? If I, I have do. to, if I have I a do. decision that's wait a minute. I said that, but I'm saying that that's okay. Got to do it for myself. Please I call say, it out, man. Right. I'm yeah. mer- I married a blonde, but I like redheads. I call it out. <laughs> yeah. I do. I always t- I'll take Ginger over Marianne anytime. <laughs> by the way, oh, I would. By Island the way, reference. you get that? By the way, I would have murdered <laughs> Gilligan. <laughs> Second episode, he would have just annoyed Barney oh, Five gosh. and Barney Five. I would have murdered second oh, episode and Gil just because they're just such annoying creatures. Anyway, I digress. Other well, some charm, some charm to them though, some charm to both of them. To which one? To Barney, to both of them, to Gilligan mm, and not. you know they lasted how long on that? I find no monicum <laughs> of charm with Gilligan. Barney oh, occasionally, perhaps other famous athletes: Johnny Tapia, Holly Holm. Uh, Don Perkins, you want to touch on some of those folks? You know, Don Perkins, I, I'd, I'd like to touch on him, Ring of Honor guy for the Dallas Cowboys. I never really got, I mean, it's my favorite team since 1970, but I never got a chance Yo, to really see him play. Cowboys, yeah, baby. Huge Cowboy fan now. Roger Staubach. Yeah, gosh. Second favorite athlete of all time. What they've turned into, man, is, you know, <laughs> they're still a fan, but uh, they've disappointed me so many times. I get used to the disappointment now. But uh, Don Perkins, you know, uh, uh, 6,000 rushing yards for the Dallas Cowboys played here at the University of New Mexico. But I got to say this, this is about eight, nine years ago. I saw him in the parking lot at the pit after a state tournament game. And I was so excited. I saw one of my son's friends. I said, hey, there's Don Perkins. This guy's a ring of honor guy, man, for the Dallas Cowboys. And this young guy had meant something. He was like, wow. But Don Perkins was, no, no, no. No, no, no. I'm just Don Perkins. He, he wasn't like that, man. He wasn't full of himself. It's one yeah. of the best people you could ever meet in your entire life. I, I really like that. So you guy. seemed extremely oh, gosh, measured, humble, humble guy. Yes. Um, I was going to interview him on radio one time. We just didn't connect. And he, he was telling me about playing in the ice bowl against, uh, you know, against Ray Nitsch. Oh, yeah, 1967. He talked about playing against Merlin Olsen. And I'm getting goosebumps like, man, wow. This guy's telling me stories of the NFL yeah. films here, you know. So, but, but when you, he's, uh, I think he's in a home now. But, you know, I'll tell you what, Mr. Perkins is just one of the most amazing people that, you know, had all that uh, success with the Dallas Cowboys, but never, it was just Don. Like, no, I'm not Mr. Perkins. Don't come at me like that. I'm not nice. I'm, I'm glad to meet you. So uh, that's one. You mentioned uh, Holly, Holly Holm. Holm, Tapia. It's a, he's an enigmatic figure for me, Johnny Tapia, because he had, you know, lots of issues personally, but he was a great, great fighter. Did you ever get to interact with Johnny Tapia? You know what? It's funny. I, I didn't. And you know what? I see him, you know, and he's nice to everybody. But it's funny because I've, I've talked to his wife, Teresa, a lot. Of, you know, I've interviewed his wife, Teresa, and, you know, she's got uh, the two sons and they're trying to get into the business. Teresa's a promoter now. But uh, if you remember Johnny Tapia, yes, you know, he did have some demons. But I go back to when his mother was killed. And I think it just ripped him up. It killed him. It, it, it used to, I used to watch him and these guys would hit him. And he'd just pound on his chest, almost like he enjoyed the pain and just go to work. The guy was in such pain, man, about his mother, and it never went away, yeah. right? It never went away. But that guy was our champion, man, you know, La, La Vida Loca. He would talk about that, and he did live that life. He did. Yeah. He was up and down. He was up and down. But if you saw him, he was still a humble guy. He's another guy that, hey, how's it going? I mean, he never took himself too seriously. And he was from that area on Mount Road. And yes, like, Wells Park uh, area. Wells, Wells Park. Park. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Wells Park guy. Straight talker Jeffrey Candelaria. I am Jeffrey Candelaria. My guest is Ed Nunez. We're with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. on 1600 a.m. That's amplitude modulation. Thank you, Eddie Aragon, for producing the show and allowing me this platform. We're having a little bit of fun today and you know, talking about sports, athletics, all that kind of thing. Iconic venues in New Mexico. We've already talked about the pit, but we're going to talk now about Duke Stadium, Isotopes Park, but also Civic. Auditorium. That was host 
some of the Civic. most <laughs> some of the most amazing experiences of my oh, life, man. including Ricky Romero Ooh. throwing tortillas out when he, you know, doing wrestling, <laughs> not wrestling, wrestling. Do you ever go to a Sunday night wrestling show held by Mike London at the Civic Auditorium? You know what I, I would watch on uh, sponsored by Mad Dog Morgan <laughs> yeah, Morgan yeah. David twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Ricky Romero, um, uh, Mr. Wrestling, uh, Bull Ramos. Uh, the the Funk Brothers, uh, the chain matches. Harry Funk, uh, yeah. And Ricky Romero every Sunday. Let me say a few words to my people, and then he's talking uh, Spanish. <laughs> exactly. And I'm not kidding. I, I, you know, people think we're making this up. We're not. He did. Uh, the Civic, the old drafty uh, uh, dungeon, right? <laughs> Finally, they raised it in 1987. Uh, the Albuquerque Silvers played there. The Continental Basketball Association right. team. Ellenberger uh, coached that. Yes, team. he did. He did a puzzle floor. They had to put together. It wasn't even a floor that was. You know, that, yeah, I remember dead spots all over that floor. Yeah. But uh, Rick James concert. I still remember going to see Rick James. Three Dog Night. I saw Bad Company, Three Dog Night, Eric Clapton. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, Eric Clapton. I would like to have seen the Three Dog Night, too. My brother Danny, oh, you know, my older God. brother Danny. Absolutely. Had that album, man. My, my A lot of my musical tastes were shaped by my brother. We shared a room, and he's older than me, so I had to like what he liked. I've never and, uh, been to Spain, but I kind of like the Beatles. Oh, anyway, that, that was an awesome song. Anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, iconic venues. Another iconic venue that preceded what is now Isotope Sparka, AAA uh, Albuquerque Stadium, uh, Albuquerque Duke Stadium. I forgot what it was. I think it was called Albuquerque Sports Stadium. Sports Will, stadium. Sports Willie stadium. Mays actually inaugurated did. that stadium in 1969. Yeah. Willie Mays, to me, the greatest baseball player of all time because he could do all five, five things. Five two guys. Plus, he had 660 home runs, and he played the majority of his uh, tenure. In Candlestick Park, which home is runs like, are blown you know, back. How many would have had? Try to hit a tornado, you know, a, a, a home run with in the midst of a tornado. Still at six hundred sixty home runs. At any rate, he said Willie Mays quoted. Let me paraphrase. This is the nicest Triple uh, A ballpark I've ever played at. I mean, think about Albuquerque Sports Stadium, another visionary, iconic venue. In nineteen sixty nine, it was a world class. Triple A venue. No, you know what? It, it really was. And, uh, you know, I've got memories of going to the uh, Dukes games and hearing foul balls hit that metal roof. You, yeah. You'd hear that loud sound. Remember and, uh, the lava? The oh, lava you know rock. what? And you mentioned too about it being at Dodger Stadium. You could go to the drive in at Albuquerque uh, Sports Stadium, you know, have beers, do whatever people did out there, watch <laughs> the game, right? Yeah. I remember yelling at the, the outfielders, hey, you, you know, you're sorry, whatever, but it was fun. Yeah. You know, not so much. But back then, though, you'd mentioned the 72 Dukes. Uh, Tom Pachorek, Von Joshua, Larry Heisel, uh, Tom Lasorda. They win the Pacific Coast League. That was a team that was not forgotten around here. One of the greatest teams of all time in AAA. Yeah. And and they actually went to Hawaii. I went with them. I don't know. My mother had recently passed away. So my grandfather, I think he felt a lot of empathy for me. He was a tremendous fan. Somehow he got tickets. The Albuquerque Dukes played in this thing called the World AAA Series in Hawaii. It doesn't happen anymore. I actually got to sit on the bench Next to Tommy Lasorda, Pachorik. Wow. Davey Lopes was on that team, as I recall. I'm trying to remember the other guys, but uh, it was like Stan Wall. He was a left-handed Stan Wall, left-hander. I yeah. remember Stan Wall. And I'm sitting there as a little kid in Hawaii, sitting all next to the And the, the thing about that team, as you remember, most of those people, 1973, graduated to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And then a year after that, played against the Oakland A's in the 1974 World Series. Which the A's won, but Only yeah, a lot of uh, on yeah. straight talk with Jeffrey Kelly. Right. Yeah, no, Isn't I remember that. that. No, I, I do remember that. Uh, that was an incredible Dukes team. And I think when the uh, the affiliation with Los Angeles Dodgers ended, oh, I yeah. probably wasn't as, that's what I mean. Today, I couldn't tell you who yeah. plays yeah. for the yeah. Isotopes, but I just know my wife and I want to go to the park and enjoy some scenery, have a beer, have some food, you know, uh, enjoy it all. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a real... Probably a more intense, integrated interest in the Albuquerque Dukes because of the affiliation with the Dodgers. I have some cousins that live in L.A., so I go to L.A. all the time. I lived in L.A. for a couple of years. So I have this thing about Los Angeles, and it's, by, by the way, it's Los Angeles. Everybody says Los Angeles. Bugs the hell out of me. Los Angeles Dodgers. At any rate, the relationship between the Albuquerque Dukes and Los Angeles Dodgers, 44 years, whatever it was, that ended about seven years ago. Since then, I'm not as interested, to be quite honest. Again, I'm, I'm not going to be dis, you know, disingenuous on my show. Having said that, the Albuquerque Isotopes still are third or fourth in the Pacific Coast League or perhaps even the nation in terms of attendance. 
they've done a great job. You know, that's one of the things. And remember, if you do remember, baseball went away for 10 years. And I think it was Mayor Jim Baca that, uh, uh, you know, and sometimes Mayor Baca's kind of forgot about. He wasn't a, a big guy, you know, in the, in the limelight, right? Sort of like Louis Saavedra. Mayor Saavedra wanted no shine at all. He kind, wanted, of, kind of a nondescript right. personality. Exactly. And so you got to give Mayor Baca credit for bringing baseball back. He deserves yep. that credit. So, uh, you know, gone for 10 years. And, and, and remember, Jeffrey, uh, that they wanted to build that stadium. They talked about it downtown, right? Where, where they built it was, that's one thing Albuquerque did, right? We're always saying Albuquerque's at the top of the worst things, this and that. They did that one right. We got to give them credit. We yeah. got to give out. And this is our hometown. And we both I do. love it. I, yeah. I, I think it should have been downtown. But, you know, I'm not going to complain. They, it's, it's a, they did a beautiful job of reconstructing what was right. the footprint of the previous venue called Albuquerque Sports Stadium. I still think it should have been downtown because I think it generates uh, economic development. That's a different topic. Okay, we've got uh, probably about 12 minutes. I want to talk about some <clears throat> national, world-class athletes that I don't think get a lot of credit. Believe it or not, Will Chamberlain, to me, is still the most iconic, dominant basketball player of all time, just for me. Mm-hmm. I think I think Lou Elcinder, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a distant second. I'd say Magic Johnson, uh, maybe Jordan, third, fourth, whatever. But Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in 1962. No film. I don't even think there are a lot of photographs. 100 points in a game without a three-pointer. Never fouled out in a game. Will Chamberlain, seven foot one out of Kansas, uh, <clears throat> averaged fifty points a game, twenty rebounds. I forgot how many assists. And no one talks about Will Chamberlain when the conversation comes up about greatest. I mean, a few people talk about Wilt, but your opinion, your thoughts, Will Chamberlain, seven foot one. Wilt is still freak of nature. If you think about it, seven one, three hundred pounds. Uh, Lou Alcindor, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said that Wilt had given him some, you know, clothes to wear when he was younger and the pants came up on his chest. He had no waist. The guy, man, had a 32-inch waist for being yeah. a 300-pounder. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger said he's the strongest man he ever lifted weights with. Absolutely. So think about that. Could bench press over 350 pounds. <laughs> so his physical gifts were incredible. Now, the thing I'll say about Wilt, remember, I'm a NBA fan since 72. I've watched the NBA. Now, yes. That's he, when they won the Lakers with Wilt. Yes, they did. He had a broken hand. And uh, you know, he uh, they beat the New York Knicks, and he was the most valuable player in five, and they beat him in five games. I'll say yes, he has the dominant stats. Yes, he's uh, a world class athlete. My thing for for me now, he, this is just me, right? This is just me. My thing is this: if a guy like that, he he won two titles. To me, now if he, he remember, we're talking about one of the world's greatest athletes. We're not just talking about a great basketball player. I don't know that he ever had that will to say, you know what? We're not losing that game to the Knicks in 1970. We're not losing this game to the Celtics in 1969. Jump on my back. There's no way we're losing. Yeah. I don't know that he was that guy. Now, again, people are going to be, oh, my God, he's this and that. Yes, he is. He was. I'm just saying for me, I've, I've studied the NBA very, very intently because I'm a big Lakers fan. And my thing is, yes, he has all the stats, but I, I just I think he should have won more than two titles if he's that guy that everybody said he was. That's all. That's just that's my fair. Opinion. That's yeah. fair. Another person that doesn't get, I don't think, enough attention, and he was, well, my favorite player, uh, probably Magic, Dr. J. I used to love Walt Frazier for the Knicks. Loved Walt Frazier. But Pete Maravich, the guy was a magician with the basketball, played at uh, LSU, averaged, I think, 43 points a game. 44 again to college. Now, keep in mind. Remind the listeners on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Gill. He's 44 points, 44 points a game. Half his shots were three-pointers. Which, right, it, uh, they didn't have, right, back he, then. He would have averaged 62 points a right. game. Now, you know, Pistol, the thing about Pistol Pete, and, and I read books about him when I was young, he would practice dribbling in the movie aisles on the way home. Some of the tricks this guy did were unbelievable. Now, you didn't get to see too much of it. College, he didn't have great success with LSU. He did score a lot of points. His dad, Press, was the coach. He went to the New Orleans Jazz and didn't play on a great team in the NBA, so he didn't get to see a lot of that. When he went to the Boston Celtics in 1980, his knees were already shot, unfortunately. Yeah. Like but, Willie Mays playing with a Oh, Mets. yeah. Right. Stumbling down in the outfield trying to make a catch at 42. Right. Still say, hey, like you mentioned, was still it was a great, great player. So I don't know that a lot of people saw what Pistol was. They hear about it, but there's not, as you mentioned, not a lot of great film. And when he went to the Jazz, he's stuck on a bad team with the Atlanta Hawks. They weren't great. So, unfortunately, you and didn't see that. And they weren't featured on national TV no. as much. There was like one game little, a month maybe at that time. Maybe two games a maybe, month. Maybe, yeah. And yeah. It was usually the Celtics, the Lakers, or the Knicks. Right. 
yes, that, that those are the three teams that were going to bring ratings into ABC TV that covered it at that time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of my favorite athletes of all time is an animal, <laughs> Secretariat. I remember as a kid just being fascinated with horses anyway. And then when Secretariat won the first leg of the Triple Crown, and keep in mind, he was the last place, uh, the run for the roses, right? Right. He was in last place till like halfway through the race. And he was a tremendous favorite, Secretariat, right? His nemesis was Frazier Ali, was a horse called Sham, who was a world-class horse. Secretariat ended up winning the first leg of the Triple Crown, coming from last place. So next race, I think two weeks later, he wins that race. Now Belmont. Now Belmont has, as you know, being someone who understands equestrian athletic endeavors, is a mile and a half. That's what, what what's called the death of Ooh. of the Triple Crown. Because most horses that win the first two legs are like sprint horses generally, mm -hmm. right? And I'm, I'm oversimplifying. But if you can win that last race, you've now had to combine winning 200-yard dashes with winning now a 10,000-meter uh, race, if you will. And again, I'm speaking metaphorically. Right. So here we are. Sham is now favored in that third leg. This is 1973, June of 73 on ABC Sports. Only on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. <laughs> Secretariat against Sham. There were only five or six horses in that race, in that last race for the Triple Crown. Remember, the Triple Crown had not been won since 25 years previously with Citation. Secretariat uh, escapes the, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the starting gate first, never uh, was was challenged. Won that race by something like 36 lengths, almost a quarter mile. Right. His records, Secretary still stand today and beat Sham. Had Secretary not been around at that time, Sham would have been the horse we're talking about at this time. Secretariat's the, thought. One of the things I read about uh, Sham this morning was uh, they found out that uh, his heart was uh, one of the biggest hearts that... Secretariat's uh, heart. Yes. Mean. Yes, I meant uh, Secretariat. So... Uh, you would, you mentioned, uh, horses, uh, they're great, uh, the horses that have won the triple crown that, uh, secretary sure stands out in, uh, in racing history. He really does. Yeah, he was an amazing, amazing horse. And to win that race as secretary did by that, by that length, by that, I mean, Not even close. And I believe his record today at Belmont, which is a mile and a half run, you know, the third leg of the triple crown, it's like a second and a half is 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 you know beyond anyone's reach right and if if you're talking about a second and a half when you're going 40 miles an hour that's a long distance no so, it sure is so you're going 40 miles an hour second and a half that's something like 100 yards or whatever so he's 100 yards or something like that beyond anything that any other horse in our last 100 years has even come close to that's yeah. how great a horse secretariat is in the annals of horse racing maybe man of war 1920s Second greatest horse of all time. Maybe well, they mentioned Citation him a lot. Or, Man of War, they mentioned a lot. They, they sure mentioned do. him a lot. Yeah. But, you know, uh, Meryl Monroe had a cousin, too. Doesn't mean nothing. It's a joke. Got about <laughs> six minutes. The greatest fight of all time, in my opinion, and there were, there were a couple that were up there. Uh, 1980, you tell me, 84, 85, Ernst Hagler. 85. Ernst Hagler. Roberto Duran. Leonard. 80, 1980. Well, the one that Leonard lost was my favorite. <laughs> Duran won. Yeah, 19, I think it was May of 80. Yeah, it's June. It's actually June. But Ollie Frazier, 1975, October, the Thriller in Manila, the conclusion of their third trilogy fight endeavor, the most brutal fight by heavyweights, in my opinion, I ever saw that went beyond 10 rounds. Your thoughts? <laughs> How they survived that, uh, I'll never know. Neither fighter should have ever fought after that. Ali should have re you know, retired. Uh, in the 14th round, Eddie Futch tells Joe Frazier, you couldn't see in the 13th, you're done. That's it, you're done. And Frazier, what he said later, would you have died to go out there? Yes, I would have died. He hated Ali at that time. He said, yes, I would have died. And Eddie Futch said, no one will forget what you did here today, Joe. He was going to come out at the same time. Ali told Angelo Dundee in the other corner, cut the gloves, I'm done. Cut them off, cut them off. Is yeah, that right? Cut him no, off. That I never he told he told Angelo Dundee, I'm done. I can't go no more. And then just then, 
the, the signal came from Eddie Fudge. Yeah, he's throwing the towel. the towel. And he saved Joe's life. So they, they, they asked Frazier later, were you mad at Eddie Futch? I can't get mad at him. He saved my life because he was going to die. The guy at that time, and you know what? Again, a guy that doesn't get enough credit, uh, smoking Joe Frazier. Unbelievable. Oh, that, that left hook from hell would hit Ali. And I was like, how did that guy stand up to that? Because it, Ali would hit him. Boom, boom, boom. Jab, jab, jab. And then boom. Knocked it, his it, mouthpiece off. Remember oh, that? God. He knocked him down in 1970 in the uh, super fight, right? Fight of the century. March knocked. of 71. Ali was up in five seconds. I'm five like, seconds. The guy should have been dead. Yeah. You know, dead, he went man, down, that hook. sprung right back up. So that fight there, neither fighter again. And, 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 and uh, Ali, after the fight, tells Marvis Frazier, you go tell your dad he's tough. He's this and that. And Marvis Frazier goes and tells Joe. And Joe says, tell him to come tell me. So they never got over that, man. Yeah, they never and all did. of what it took was Ali to go down to the dressing room and say, I'm sorry. They never a did. Hug, and it would have been over. And, yeah, and Ali couldn't do it. Absolutely. And again, that they had they fought three times. A March of 71. They fought 74. Ali won that that uh, that fight. And then Ali won. the So Ali won the rubber match, two out of three. But it was the most brutal match I've ever seen in my life. Ali won the first four or five rounds in 75 through Manila. Frazier won the middle rounds pretty substantially, no, he pretty did. overtly. He did. And then Ali, the last three or four rounds, around 12, 13, 14, overwhelmed Frazier with just his quickness, his style. Because remember, Ali could throw any punch from almost any angle with flair, finesse, and efficacy. And Frazier just couldn't uh, respond. Both eyes closed, bleeding, nose, mouth, the whole nine yards. Greatest act of courage and fearlessness I've seen in in my lifetime in the annals of sport. I think the uh, Fraser Smith by both by both right. contestants. I think he was in the hospital three days, and I think Ali was. I think spent some time in the hospital two days. Almost uh, Ali when they told him you won. I remember he went like this, and then he collapsed. <laughs> collapsed. He he, collapsed. I don't know how they made it, man. Uh, Hearns Hagler. 1970 or 85. 85. Remind our, you know, listeners. how Round one, uh, round one, Tommy Hearns. Now, before the fight. Hitman Hearns, Yeah, right? Tom, Tommy From Hearns. Detroit, Michigan. Oh, man. Oh, my. The Motor City Cobra. That right hand would knock you out. Before the fight, someone went in there and massaged Tommy Hearns' legs, and Emmanuel Stewart had left his manager. You don't do that. You don't massage a fighter's legs. So Hearns had to go for broke because he didn't have nothing left. He went for broken round one, broke his hand on Hagler's head, and uh, you know he, he caused some damage. He did hurt Hagler. They he looked did. at the cut, and they you know they let it go. And then after that, man, Hagler the next two rounds, Tommy Hearns had a uh, what they'd say a glass chin. You know, Tommy Hearns is a great fighter, but if you you nailed him, you know, and, and uh, Hagler uh, retained his. It only went title. three rounds, but maybe the greatest three rounds by world class fighters ever. I'm talking about just three rounds. You know, an intense concentration of just brutality, right? No, it was incredible. It yeah. really was. Incredible and then, of fight. course, my second favorite fighter other than Muhammad Ali, Roberto Duran, Hands of Stone. The only fighter I, all, I ever remember that when, you, when he was mad and upset, he actually fought better, you know? But he defeated uh, Leonard May 1980, and Leonard was, was a slight favorite. Right? That was in Montreal, as I recall. We're all in Montreal. Now, Roberto Duran, who is my favorite fighter, along with Muhammad Ali in the hands of stone, uh, Manos de Piedra, as they we call him. We have a lot in common here. Oh, yeah. I love, I love Roberto <laughs> Duran. You know, he was so hyped up. He wanted to be what he thought was the overhyped American. He, he, he felt like he wasn't getting enough uh, recognition for what he had done in the lightweight division. True. One of the greatest fighters. He came out with a fury that I never saw. I watched it on closed circuit here at the pit. I remember watching on closed circuit, man, there was some, some mad fans there. I mean, just mad with some passion and yo, Duran, Duran. I'll never forget it. So uh, most of the fans in Albuquerque were. Pro Duran. Yes, of course. When I was there yeah. that night, I there might've been, and Leonard, by the way, uh, fought a, a tremendous fight. Sugar Ray Leonard. I didn't like him at first, but when I saw the 30 for 30, no moss, when they went back and wondered uh, why Duran had quit, I, I got a newfound respect for Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard was absolutely outstanding. But that night that Duran beat him in Montreal, man. <laughs> I remember 15 rounds of fury. 15 rounds. Remember, it wasn't 12. It was 15. Oh, that's right. And including, including some of those iconic fights, Ali, Frazier, and others fought. They were 15 rounders. 15 now, rounds. They go, now they go 12. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, you were at the game. Another iconic experience in Albuquerque and New Mexico, 1983, North Carolina State, a prohibitive underdog against Houston. Houston. Right. You were at the game. I think we got, what, a couple of minutes, Eddie? Got about one minute, just very quickly, that game, 1983, uh, March 1983. Well, if you think about it, Jim Valvano, last second shot by a uh, follow by Lorenzo Charles from North Carolina State. Jim Valvano wins a title here. Of course, he 
passed away from cancer, but he's going out on the court looking for someone to hug. Just a great experience here at the uh, and pit. And unfortunately, yeah. the pit held 18,000. You will not see a game like that at a no, smaller no, arena like that. No more NCAA tournament yeah. games here no more. And you know, it's been a, a pleasure. Uh, Jeffrey Candelaria, straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Eddie Otagon, for producing the show and providing this platform. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelaria.